Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad, and say evermore, Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Those are verses 26 to 28 of Psalm 35, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, September the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Job uh, and today in chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, and then verses 14 to 27. Also in the Gospel according to John, chapter 9, verses 18 to 41, and then ultimately in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, verses 13 to 25. So we're continuing to listen to Job's words as he responds to his friends who who have come and said, well, you wouldn't be having all these problems if there wasn't some sort of sin somewhere. And so you just need to come clean on this, Job. You need to deal with it. You need to acknowledge who you are and who God is. And then he will be gracious to you and relent from this harm that's been brought upon you. And any uh, suffering has to be considered to be evil, right? I mean, we wouldn't suffer. God wouldn't, heavens, God wouldn't want us to suffer, would he? Well, it it seems pretty clear (laughs) that Jesus said, yeah, that's going to be part of life. You know, it, it, you, you're not going to be able to avoid it uh, by coming to me. That's that's not going to take you out of the world that you're living in, and it's not going to provide some sort of supernatural protection against all harm that could come against you, because you live in a world that's busted and broken by sin, and so characteristic of such a world is harm. So we, we need to to get over the idea that 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 difficulties won't come into our lives. Because we're Christians, we need to also get over the idea that all difficulties are bad or evil, because sometimes those difficulties are there to challenge us, to help us stand up against temptation to sin, or to change our character in ways that make us more useful to God than if we lived a life that was free from any trouble. And we know that God's intention is not to completely deliver us from from pain and difficulty in the world, because he sent his son and he came and died on a cross after much persecution. So, so let's get over that idea. Let's get over it right now. But Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? He's speaking to his friends here. And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. I mean, he is he's in the depths of his pain, and it seems a ridiculous. I mean, if you look at this, these accusations on the face of it, it sounds like a ridiculous thing, except for the fact that we, we accuse ourselves of these things whenever we're going through difficult times. And then other people do, too. They're, they're not always as, as sort of uh, indecent about it as Job's friends are. They, they typically would do it from a distance in private conversations and not, not come directly to us like Job's, quote, friends did here. So we, we've got to, to see the, the reality is, is that it sounds absolutely ridiculous to say that, that your sins are so important. And your sins are so horrible that we don't even know what they are, but they must be incredibly bad, Job. Because if, if they weren't, you wouldn't be going through this extreme 
difficulty that you're having in your life. You wouldn't be going through this extreme pain in your life. That sounds utterly ludicrous. But we can say that about ourselves. We can cast about when we're in difficulty, looking and asking, Lord, show me what it is. Show me what it is that I might repent of this thing. And it, But it, it becomes our cry. We don't accept that it might be for our good that we're going through these difficult things. He says, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. To his servant, he's pleading for mercy. Even young children know my breath is strange to my wife. Isn't that a great thing? Um, And I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. I mean, everybody, everybody has rejected me, and nobody wants to have anything to do with me. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? I mean, this is a guy who is in incredible pain, and there's nobody who will speak kindly and mercifully and encouraging words to him. It's a rough place to be, and he's feeling completely alone, and not just alone, but also abandoned. And and Jesus could have gone there, right? He could have gone there on the cross. Instead, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And But there's the, he invokes the entire psalm, which tells of the deliverance of God, ultimately, for the one who felt mistaken, and or forsaken, sorry, not mistaken. So we've got Job now crying out these same things, like, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know why everybody has turned against me, but it's painful, and in my pain, you've abandoned me. He continues, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. You want to know something? They are. They are. Job's words, the ones that he's just talking about, (laughs) have been studied and studied and studied for thousands of years by lay people and clergy people and scholars and all kinds of other people in the world. And, and, and so Job got his wish that they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he'll stand on the earth. And his plea here is, is, is that, that I'm not going to make it to see the Redeemer I'm, there's not going to be an answer in my lifetime. So I just want my complaint written. And then he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So he's convinced of resurrection, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So he knows that ultimately these things are going to be there. And, and we get reconciliation in all these things along the way. And, and we get the ultimate reconciliation at the end of time. And our, so our hope is the same as Job's hope, that there's ultimately justice, that, that the accusations that have been brought against me are false, and, and that there will be justice ultimately. And, and we know that there is. Job gets his in this life. He doesn't get his children back. God doesn't bring them back from the dead. But he, but he does get more children. And it, it's, it's hard to be in that situation. It's a very difficult place to be. And Job um, isn't navigating it particularly well, but, 
you know what? It, it's really hard to navigate that particularly well. And I can't imagine the pain that Job feels. Nothing I've ever experienced would even remotely compare to the loss that Job has experienced here. The loss of not only everything that he held dear, but also the loss of everything that he believed. I mean, so that's really the thing that Job is going through right now, is that everything he believed has been proven to be wrong at some level. In the uh, in the gospel today, we're still in that story about Jesus healing the man born blind. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They were not willing to, to speak up on behalf of Jesus. They were willing to affirm that this is indeed our son. He seems to have been healed. He sees now, and he never did before. But we're not willing to go out on that limb and say how that happened. You, you're going to have to ask him about that. <clears throat> so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and asked him, <clears throat> Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay? Whether, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I've already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So they're discipled according to the law. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. I mean, you're focusing on the wrong thing, if I might use that word advisedly. The focus, I've never been able to focus my eyes, but, but I can focus my mind on true things. So I don't know where he comes from, but ultimately, what does it matter is what his response is. He says, you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, you see or you claim to have vision, and I didn't have anything at all until... A few minutes ago, I didn't have any sight at all, but I see much more clearly than you do because I'm seeing the truth about this man that you're basing your opinion of him on the fact that he did this thing that required work on the Sabbath, and and you're overlooking the reality of the thing that he did was healing a man who had been born blind. What in the world is wrong with you? How can you people be the leaders of the people and be this dense and be this unwilling to accept the actual evidence of your eyes. And your only thing is, we have a lack of evidence about where this man comes from. That's it? That's what you're basing your judgment on? Not based on what just happened here? What a weird idea. That's exactly what this guy's saying. He, he's saying, you know, basically, I may not be much because I was born blind, but you guys feel like you know everything, but you can't even evaluate evidence properly. And they answered him, you're born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And so what they do is they prove that their belief 
and the disciples' beliefs are the same, and that is, is that there's a curse of God on the life of this man because of sin. They're not bothering to say who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. They're just saying the same thing, which is there was sin. We're not even trying to sort out where that sin was. doesn't really matter. The proof that God cursed you is your blindness. Well, so, okay, if that's the proof of God's curse, what's the proof that the healing provides? So they cast him out. He's no longer allowed in the synagogue because he gave glory to Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. So to this man and to the woman at the well, Jesus fully entrusts himself. And he says, I'm the son of man. That's exactly who it is. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, remember that what we saw in the, um, in the epistle a couple of days ago was Herod receiving worship from the people of Tyre and Sidon, largely because they wanted to curry favor with him, not because they actually felt any of the things that they were saying about him. And he, did, he received that. And that's shortly after that that he died. Also remember that Peter, um, that Cornelius came to worship Peter when he showed up. And Peter says, get up, I'm just a man like you. And, and that's the way to deal with those things. But Jesus, it doesn't say, dissuaded this man from worshiping him at all. Nor should he. <laughs> and we can see that the worship of Jesus is completely appropriate. And we know that it is because, well, we can read Revelation 5 where the heaven worships the lamb looking like it was slain. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who did not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So he's not sent into the world to judge the world, but judgment happens based on what people believe. So they're not being judged, but they're judging, but judgment is happening. Because it's clear now that those who, um, who have claimed to see don't see at all. So some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, Are we so blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, yeah, you're exactly the people I was just talking about when I say that those who claim to see um, are judged. So it's, he, he's very clear about this, and they must have heard Jesus tell this man that he was the son of man as well, if they overheard that other comment. So it's, it's, there, there's got to be a reckoning in their eyes, because Jesus has dismissed them, disregarded them, and disrespected them. And so ultimately, they're going to show him who's boss. In the epistle, Paul and his companions set out from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them, John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So it's a different Antioch than they had been in before. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So the, the practice in the synagogues of the day that, that were not in Jerusalem was is that if you had people from Jerusalem visiting, it was presumed that they were sort of more spiritual, let's say, and particularly people like Paul who, who had grown up in the rabbinic schools and had made a name for himself along the way. So they invited him to come and speak, he and Barnabas both. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, 
and you who fear God. So not just the Jews who are here today, but those Gentiles who might be here as well, who are, who are God-fearers. <clears throat> Listen, the people of God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Great meaning numerous. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I mean, what a great way of saying that. He put up with them in the wilderness. He didn't just lead them in the wilderness. He put up with them for about 40 years in the wilderness. That's, that's probably ultimately how God feels about me. I put up with him for a long time. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all of this took about 450 years. In other words, God, God moves um, slowly. But, but he does so deliberately. There's no capriciousness to the way the Lord does things. He's willing to take the time. He was willing to take the time for the, for the Canaanites, the sin of the Canaanites, to fill the land that he was going to give to his people before he drove them out and destroyed them. He was willing to persevere and wait with these people in the wilderness for 40 years in order to bring them in. So God's patient, and he moves at his own pace. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, which is what Paul was, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, Jesus had, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So Paul gives an overview of salvation history here in a couple of minutes. Essentially, he, he gives the history of salvation beginning with the choosing of Abraham and therefore then the nation that will come from Abraham and then moving into Egypt and into the wilderness, into the land, up through the time of the judges to David the king, and then ultimately from there directly to Jesus. And so he traces all of salvation history here in, in a very brief little jaunt and then ties it up at the end with, this Jesus is the one. He was the Savior, as he promised. So Paul stands in front of this synagogue and proclaims something that, that's not going to be popular. And we know it's not going to be popular. There's no way that it's going to be received by the leaders particularly very well. And the word's going to get out. But, but Paul doesn't care. He doesn't care about his reputation. He cares about glorifying and lifting up Jesus because he, he says that if, if, Jesus said that if the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. And so there's a point and a purpose to, to lifting up Jesus, which is to see people come to know him, come to believe in him and come to follow him, to receive eternal life in his name. That's the reason we proclaim. We know the truth. We know that our Redeemer lives. Job prophesied it, and he knew it deep in his heart. He was a man of incredible faith and understanding, yet he, didn't, he hadn't seen this one and he, that he knew would come and would bring his vindication, ultimately. But he's not going to be vindicated because of his righteousness. He's going to be vindicated because of God's mercy. Because in the things that he's saying, he does sin. And so it's, it's necessary, even Job, 
needed a redeemer. It's important for us to always proclaim a redeemer. And it's always important to proclaim Jesus is that redeemer. But we need to see him and we need to lay our questions aside and base our opinions and our beliefs completely on what we know.